Hey again. This one's a pretty unresponsive group this morning. I, I don't know. So, hey, I would like us to read some scripture right now. We're just going to, uh, at this moment, uh, read two really brief passages from the Old Testament. One from the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel, and the other from the other book of Samuel, 2 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 18, 2 Samuel chapter 1. They're just two moments in two people's lives, two people who were, um, got connected, uh, were, were deeply connected, were friends, but friends maybe with a depth that most of us don't usually really even think about friendship in terms of. And uh, those two guys are, uh, one is an exceedingly well-known person in the history of God's people, the Jewish people, and that's David, King David. And many of you know the name of his very good friend, uh, Jonathan. So um, I'm going to invite you to actually stand with me in honor of God's word, and we're just going to uh, read these two short passages. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan, his son, became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. And from that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. And now, some years later, uh, Jonathan and his father have been killed in battle. And uh, the people are mourning and David is mourning the loss, even of his arch enemy Saul. Uh, But in the midst of his song of, of mourning, he speaks these words, sings these words. Um, about his friend. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. And we're not going to read the other passage right now. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Well, Christians are still trying to work through exactly how to put the pages of Genesis together with what the, with scientific research and scientific theory have to say about the past of the universe and the past of our planet and the story of life on earth, including human life. But however you put it together, I never want you to miss this. The Bible makes it unmistakably clear the universe doesn't just exist. And it doesn't exist by accident. That it exists because God intended it. That the universe is on purpose. That's a general statement, but I want to make an even more specific one. That there's something else in this universe in particular that's not here by accident. Uh, God gives special attention to this really tiny planet in the midst of this huge universe. A planet we know really well because it's our home. We call it Earth. We've no, never known any, anything else. And on this planet, God had and has special concern about one particular creature. It, it isn't that he doesn't care about the rest of the universe. And only cares about earth. And it's not that he only cares about human beings and doesn't care about other creatures on earth. Please don't make God smaller. God is big enough to care about. Even if we're not clued in on exactly what that means and how that works. God cares about his creation. All of it. But God has a special delight and a special interest and a special focus on human beings. People like you and me. We were part of this broader creation 
but we were distinct and we were different because we were made uniquely by God for God. And we were made uniquely by God to be with God. We were made uniquely by God to have a relationship with God. I think the, 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 the rocks of the earth have a relationship with God, but it's not the same as your relationship and mine. I think the creatures that move along the earth. I saw the craziest little scene on video the other day of a man up in a tree hunting, and all of a sudden, I believe he was hunting, but all of a sudden, there is a bear climbing up the same tree. Did anybody see that? Wow. I'm sure, somehow or another, that God has a relationship with all the creatures that run and crawl and climb, but it's not the same kind of relationship as he has with you and me, because guess what? You and I, we can think about it. We can intend it. We can listen and communicate back. We have minds and hearts that are distinct and different, above and beyond anything else. God created us for him. At the very beginning, God created us. Well, Psalm 139, the the, the poet waxes eloquent about creation. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. And one of the ways we're fearfully and wonderfully made, we have it in common with many other creatures, and yet there's something different about it among human beings, is we're not all just the same. There is a diversity in our unity as human beings. God created us as a race. There's unity. We're all human beings, but there's a diversity in the very form and structure of the human race. We are male and female. So similar, and yet so different. And God wanted that difference, and he said to us, each is necessary. The human race isn't complete. If it was just men, it would not be complete. If it was just women, it would not be complete. Even if there was some other way to to bring about another generation, there would be something missing just in our experience. Whether you're married or not, your life is incomplete if there's not other gendered people in your world and in your relationship. But the very heart of that God told a story about the first man and the first woman coming together and being joined in something, a relationship that we call marriage. God smiled on that relationship. It was his design. He loved it. And it was powerful. And that's how the first people experienced it. And it was exactly the fact that they were both the same species, but there was something distinct and different, a diversity that brought them together such that they were complementary They were not redundant. Neither of them was entirely the same. They were complementary to each other. The two became one. And the two became one flesh. And the two shared a life together. And the two brought about other life. And here we are, all these years later. God's design. And Jesus loved that. Jesus talked about it one day, and he said this. He talked to the Pharisees, those religious leaders. He said, don't you guys ever read... He said to them, you ever read um, this thing way back at the beginning that in the beginning the creator made them male and female? You guys are vaguely familiar with that? Jesus was saying to them. Made them male and female and for that reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And those whom God has joined together let no one separate. You read through the story of the Bible and you understand the storyline and the deeper meanings of what's in the scriptures and you understand that God says this magnificent, huge yes to marriage. And he says a magnificent and huge yes to men and women in marriage. And he says a magnificent, huge yes 
to sex and sexual relationships in marriage. Something glorious and powerful. It's not always simple. Um, It's not always as easy as we might might like it to be. I read the other day, uh, a friendly acquaintance of mine uh, wrote this the other day on Facebook, just as a question he put out there. Isn't putting the seat down 96.3% of the time something to be praised? (laughs) Gus responded, that's like a, a 963 batting average. That ought to get you in the bigs. Scotty said, apparently marriage is not graded on the curve. Yes, said Steve, unless one of the 3.7% is discovered in the middle of the night, so I've been informed. (laughs) You know, men and women are created to be together, but it's not so simple sometimes, right? And yet that is the design. But Todd Wilson, pastor near Chicago, in his book, Mere Sexuality, we've stolen the title for this series from his little book, says this. God says yes to the joining of our lives to form a one flesh union called marriage and yes to enjoining the unitive and procreative powers of sex, a divine hearty yes to it all. There's nothing wrong or sinful or disordered in any of this and there's everything right and good and glorious about it. But with the yes comes an equally resolute no. Because according to the Bible and according to nearly unanimous consensus of the Christian church, God says no to any and every form of sexual activity outside of this one flesh union called marriage. And let me hasten to add that God says no irrespective of the people involved, whether same sex or opposite sex. And that is a really hard thing. It's not the law of the land. It's not even the practice of the culture anymore by a long shot. It's not a popular statement. It goes against the grain. It's a wind that blows the prevailing wind of our culture and our nation and our experience. But we can't get away from what the Bible teaches us and what Jesus says and the profound respect that the Bible gives to our bodies and the ways we're created and, 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 and the ways human beings come into existence. We can't just step away from that. But here's the problem. In our world, it seems to be the saddest and worst thing of all not to be in a romantic relationship of some kind. And it seems almost incomprehensible to human beings today to be a person who's never had sex or is not in a sexual relationship right now or hasn't been recently or won't be soon. Those two things are almost incomprehensible to people. Oh, we, we say things and, 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 and we encourage things. And the truth is marriage as a whole is struggling. You know, a couple of years ago, for the first time in recorded history, the percentage of the population of adult Americans that is single surpassed the percentage of the population that is married. There are more single adults today than married adults in America. But there's not more single adults who are not having sex or not married or in some kind of relationship or other. Because we find it incomprehensible. We think it's like um, the, the worst possible thing that you are missing something absolutely essential and we can't imagine stories. Even Sex in the City, um, I'm afraid a TV show a TV series I, I've, I've entirely missed. Here and gone, and I, I missed it, but I think I know enough that it, it's primarily the story of, of the life of single women 
their lives. And in the end of that story, do you know what happens at the end after these women live their single active lives? Is they are all either married or in relationship at the end. Because the happy story we all have in our minds always ends up in a romantic relationship that includes sex. And it seems to be what, that, what Jesus is saying is sex isn't just something that's always there for everybody to serve your recreative purposes and to make you feel better and to fill up something in your life that you feel to be, seems to be missing. But sex has this really important role and it's tied to what Wilson calls unitive and procreative. They go together. And sex is something that belongs in this relationship that God calls marriage, that Jesus defines as a committed, exclusive Um, blessed and fruitful relationship of one man and one woman. The sex isn't the foundation of that. You don't start with sex and end up with marriage. Some of us do, but that's not the design. The design is marriage is this committed relationship and it is sealed and blessed by sexual union. But what about those who aren't married? And what about someone whose drive and internal sense is is not towards the opposite sex? Is it the ultimate curse? Wesley Hill is someone I I would like to meet someday. I'd like to tell him how much I appreciate his words. Had we been of the same generation, we might have met. We, We attended the same college, but I'm about two decades older than he is. It was about the time he was going off to college that he realized that just in terms of who he was inside of himself, he was same-sex attracted. He shared that with some friends, that news and that truth. And, and they walked with him and he thought about a lot of things and he talked with a lot of people. He struggled with that through adolescence, through college days. He couldn't get away from the fact that's just what he experienced. But he also couldn't get away from this, that it seemed utterly clear to him that the Bible teaches, and Jesus says, that marriage and sex are intended for a man and a woman. And so he realized his life, if he was going to stay true to that, would not be exactly what he had in mind. He writes this, What I feared most, though, about my decision to remain celibate was that I had thereby doomed myself to lifelong loneliness. When I was still in high school, despite being gay, I often daydreamed about what it would be like to be married, to have a house and children, to have a home of the sort I had growing up, to know that I belong somewhere. And now, in light of where I felt my Christian faith was taking me, I stopped dreaming about those things. In their place, I began to have a recurrent picture of myself around age 60, coming home to an empty apartment, having lived all of my adulthood as a single man. I started to think about the particulars of that scenario not knowing each year uh, for sure where I'd be for Christmas, waking up each morning to a quiet bedroom and having no one across the table from me as I ate my cereal before heading to work, coming home at the end of the day and reading a book with no one to talk to about the parts of it that stood out to me. I began to resonate with what Lauren Winter has called the loneliness of the everyday, the loneliness of no one knowing if your plane landed on time, of no one to call if you lock yourself out of your house, or if your alternator dies. I find that loneliness worse than the loneliness that comes as a result of a breakup or divorce. I'm not sure how many of us think about that very often. 
especially in a world that says if you're not in a romantic relationship and you're not in a sexual relationship, you're missing. You're missing out. You're to be pitied. Man, if you've never had sex, maybe you're even a freak of some kind. That's almost how it comes across. Um, it was 70 years ago plus that, I, I bet you know his name. He was a committed Christian. He was an academic. He was a really smart guy. He never got to be old. He barely got to be middle-aged. I'm not sure he got to be middle-aged. He was 39 when he died. 39 when he was killed. He was a German. Many of you know his name. His name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a pastor, a writer, a thinker. When he died, he was in prison. When he died, he was engaged to be married. He'd never been married before. Through the years, um, lots of books have been written about him. Some of you read one of them. It's a big book. Eric Metaxas, Bonhoeffer. Some of you read this. If you, if you haven't and you really want to go for it, there it is. It's a great read. But you know, one book's not enough for Dietrich Bonhoeffer, so they just keep coming. Charles Marsh, a couple years ago, wrote Strange Glory. Same man, more telling. But you know what? These two books are relatively skimpy. Do you know that? They don't look skimpy, do they? They're relatively skimpy. The granddaddy of them all is this one. Now that's a book. That could hurt you. If you've recently had surgery, you're not allowed to pick this book up. Okay? You can't even, you have to have someone else place it on your lap to read it. And then when you're done reading, you need to call someone, come over, pick this book up for me. This is, wow, that's a mega book. And it's written by a man, Eberhard Bethke, who lived a long time past when Dietrich did. He died in 1945, Dietrich. Eberhard died in the year 2000, 55 years after his good friend Dietrich died. Almost everything we know about Dietrich Bonhoeffer comes ultimately from Eberhard Bethke and his work. And almost everything we know about Eberhard Bethke is that he was Dietrich Bonhoeffer's friend. And they were good friends. This is a labor of love. This is what you do for a friend. You keep telling his story and you keep researching what he was about and you tell his story till the day you die. Eberhard even married, uh, 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 Dietrich was a young guy in his family, but Eberhard married his niece, Renata. And uh, they were just, <laughs> that was his life, Eberhard. Um, there were letters that Dietrich wrote from prison that were later collected, and they were collected by Eberhard, and most of them were written to Eberhard. And some of them, wow, they just evidenced a closeness of relationship that was almost shocking, sometimes almost embarrassing, the language that was used. Years later, Eberhard was an old man. He addressed an audience member who'd come to hear him speak about his friendship with Bonhoeffer, and this is what the questioner said at a certain point. Surely, you must have been in a homosexual partnership with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. What else could Bonhoeffer's impassioned letters to Eberhard have signaled? I want you to think about something. I want you to think about the word love for a few moments. 
I didn't hear, I didn't witness any of the wedding yesterday. Some of you did. Some of you get up and watch. I, I missed it. Um, but I did hear just a little bit about it. I heard it was really good and, uh, and all the rest. And I, I heard the pastor actually might have stolen the show a little bit. The Episcopal Bishop Michael Bruce Curry and his message on love. Just listen to a couple things he said. Early in his message, he said this. The New Testament says it this way. Beloved, let us love one another because love is of God and those who love are born of God and know God. And those who do not love do not know God. Why? For God is love. There's power in love. I want to remind you of something that's really significant and important because we're apt to forget it. Because we use that word love broadly and loosely and in some sentimental way. But most of all, we use that love, word love for our families and for our marriages and for that special someone in our lives that we are romantically and maybe sexually and, and maybe long-term committed to. And that's all in our society now because that word love drips with romance. And maybe even drips with sex, because one way of saying to have sex is to make love. And we just put those words together entirely. But if you read the Bible, you find out that the first place of love is not marriage. The first place of love is, how do you describe it? Where does love go for the Christian? Love goes in our lives, because it's it's who God is, and it's what God has called us to. Jesus Christ reaffirmed it. Here's the most important thing in life. You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Who's that God? The God who loved you first. The God who is love. That's the God you're to love. And then beyond that, along with it, and and, 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 and just belonging with loving God, is loving your neighbor as yourself. And so, at some level of the word, love doesn't equal sex. But love equals what we're called to give to each other and to one another, the people around us. Love your neighbor as yourself. Why, for Christians, we are so reckless and profligate with our love, or at least our Lord called us to be that way, that we love our enemies. After all, God loved us when we were his enemies. God loved us when we weren't so good. God loved us when we were still sinners. And God hates sin, and God hates evil, and God hates all that is unjust, and God hates all that is unrighteous. But in spite of that, God loved us even when we weren't right. And when the God you come from and the God who made you in Christ in the beginning and the God who rescued you in Christ in his death and resurrection and in a new birth is a God of love, why, you become a people of love too. And so you remember that 1 Corinthians 13 is read at a lot of weddings, but it is not about marriage. It's about love. And most of the scriptures you hear at weddings are not probably about marriage. They're about love. And marriage is a special place for love. And those passages are relevant to that. But the call of love is greater than that. (laughs) Stephanie Kuntz in her study of marriage says this, until the middle 19th century, the word love was used more frequently to describe feelings for neighbors, relatives, and fellow church members than for spouses. Weird, isn't it? Why am I talking about this in a series about sex? Because sex isn't everything, and marriage isn't everything. And somehow or another, God says that in the future, we are going to have an experience and a life that is beyond our imagining, and it will be beyond sex, 
and it will be beyond marriage, and it will be better than anything we've ever known or experienced here. So there's nothing to bemoan or feel sad about when you anticipate that. And God puts signs of it in our lives, even now. We say, we have this saying, blood is thicker than water. And you know what that means? When push comes to shove, the people who are going to stick with you are the ones who are in your family. It's your spouse, and it's your parents, and it's your children. Those are the ones, those are the relationships that last. The other kinds of relationships, they can be important, and sometimes they last for a long time, but for the most part, those come and go, and push comes to shove when when the chips are down. Blood is thicker than water. But the Christian faith actually teaches something different than that. It actually teaches water is thicker than blood. What water am I talking about? I'm talking figuratively about the water of baptism. That the baptized community, the community of the baptized, those who are the children of God through faith in Jesus Christ, those who've come to know who they are and who God is and who follow him, are in a relationship with each other that is an eternal relationship. God, we all pray that our families and our marriages and our children and our parents may be a part of that forever relationship. But just being family sometimes doesn't last. We all know that. But the family that God puts us into is a family that lasts and lasts and lasts. We raise up romance and we raise up marriage and we have a special day for it and my goodness do we spend a lot of money on it people go into debt for it they throw huge parties they invite all their friends they do what they would never do even even uh, dave ramsey types lose it all forget it putting that aside they go crazy on that day they have the biggest parties they can imagine and we we have a high holy ritual to to make this commitment Because it's so significant, it's so important, and do you know what? I believe it is. But it's not the relationship that is important and that matters. There's another kind that's important too, and it's the relationship of friend. Friendship is hurting in our world today. Friendship is hurting in America today. Friendship is hurting in the church today. And we are suffering from it, all of us, and some people suffer a lot from it. Those who are not in a romantic relationship, those who are not married, those who for a million and one different reasons are on their own, are sometimes on their own more than God wants them to be. And the Lord wants us to be a community of friendship. When God wants to describe the relationship between God and his people or between Jesus Christ and his body, do you know what he uses? He uses marriage as a metaphor. It's like husband and wife being joined together. Two who are somewhat different coming together and becoming one flesh. And Jesus says, that's me and my people. Isn't that awesome? Our marriage is about more than just ourselves. It's an image of God and his relationship with us. But you know when God talks about his close connection with individual people, do you know what metaphor he uses? He doesn't use that one. I'm personally thankful that God never calls me personally his wife because I, I, I just wouldn't quite know what to do with that. Okay, I'm okay with the idea that, that I'm a part of the bride of Christ communally. But when it comes to a relationship of God and a person, 
Do you know the metaphor that, that God leans on? It's the metaphor of friend. Friend. And so Abraham was God's friend. And Moses, God spoke to Moses face to face like a man with his friend. And Jesus said to his disciples one day, I don't call you servants. I call you friends. I want to read a couple of words from Wesley Hill again. He says this. I imagine a future in the church when the call to chastity would no longer sound like a dreary sentence to lifelong loneliness for a gay Christian like me. I imagine Christian communities in which friendships are celebrated and honored, where it's normal for families to live near or with single people, where it's expected that celibate gay people would form significant attachments to other single people, families, and pastors, where it's standard practice for friends to spend holidays together or share vacations, where it's not out of the ordinary for friends to consider staying put, resisting the allure of constant mobility for the sake of their friendships. I imagine a church where genuine love isn't located exclusively or even primarily in marriage, but where marriage and friendship and other bonds of affection are all seen as different forms of the same love that we are called to pursue. Friends, the church sometimes screws it up. And sometimes in the life of the church, a church like us, a church that's, even though we're within Grand Rapids, we are, essentially we feel like a suburban church of middle class and upper middle class people or people who want to be there. And we are mostly a church of families and mostly a church of married couples. It's great to an extent, but God has single people. God has divorced people. God has widowed people. God has never married people. God cares about some people who are same-sex attracted who step in here, and if they listen to what I just said, they're hearing counter to what they hear everywhere else, that God's will for them is not to step into a relationship sexually with someone from the same gender. And what do we say to them? And you know what Jesus says to them, to us? Love your neighbor as yourself. Reach out. Care for those who aren't in families. Care for those who aren't in couples. Be friends with them. Reach a relationship and a connection. That's what God calls us to. Wesley Hill talks about his desire to have something like, uh, uh, you know, did you notice David and Jonathan made a covenant with each other? They gave things to each other. They made a commitment to each other, a, a commitment of their lives. It wasn't a marriage. It wasn't sexual. It wasn't erotic. It was a friendship, but it was a committed friendship. And other people knew about it, and it it, it impacted the lives around them. And Wesley Hill thought, you know, it would be great to have some kind of commitment ceremony. Church Christians in the past have had that. But he said, I I don't know it's ever going to happen. But he was at home, he said, one night washing the dishes, and the phone rang. and, And there was a friend of his on there who called and asked if he would consider being his daughter Callie's godfather, a witness at her baptism and a help to her parents as they sought to raise her in the faith. The guy said, Jono was his name, said, think about it and pray about it. And Wesley did, and he said yes. 
He said, several weeks later, I stood near the baptismal font in a small Anglican church, warmed by the cascade of sunlight pouring through the windows behind me. And the priest lifted Callie, clad in her new white dress above the font, dipped his hand in the water, and made the sign of the cross in her forehead. Parents and godparents, he said, the church receives Callie with joy. Today we're trusting God for her growth in the faith. Will you pray for her, draw her by her example into the community of faith, and walk with her in the way of Christ? And alongside Callie's godmothers, I answered, with the help of God, we will. It wasn't an exchange of vows between a friend and me, at least not directly, but it was as close to that as I might hope for today. Becoming a godparent meant that my relationship to two of my good friends and their children had been sealed through baptism and witnessed by other believers. It was a small step in transforming a you're mine because I love you relationship into an I love you because you're mine one. Brothers and sisters, open up your hearts, open up your minds, open up your lives to trust God and to love the people near you. Let's pray. Dear Lord, it's not always easy to trust you. It's not always easy to love your will, especially when it's counter to everything around us. But we ask that you help us to trust you and we help, that you help us to do what you call us to do and to be who you call us to be. Jesus, thank you for calling us your friends. Help us to be friends of your friends, whoever they are. Help us to welcome them. Help us to be committed. Do your work. In your name we pray.